Uh, church, good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel. I serve as one of the pastors here of the Olathe Campus of Christ Community. And if I haven't had the joy of getting to meet you or know you, I'd love to say hi to you. So come find me after service. Love to say hi. It's a joy to be with you today as we turn to God's Word. If you have a Bible, have it open to John chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me pray for our time to ask for the Lord to bless the hearing, the teaching, and the living out of His holy and timeless words. Let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, you are the God who makes everything out of nothing. You are the God who speaks light out of darkness. You are the God who summons life out of tombs, out of death. And so, Lord, what I ask is that same power, that same spirit that hovered over the waters of creation, that same spirit that has empowered the biblical authors to give us your word, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, we ask, Holy Spirit, to be at work within us. Would you awaken us to the truth of your word? Would we see within these timeless words of the Lord Jesus, not simply spiritually inspiring tales, but truth that brings life to our weary, broken, and dead souls? And so, Lord, in this time, use me for your purposes. May we be sharpened and formed together by your word, so that we might be comforted by it and live in light of its truth with boldness, with conviction and integrity. And so, Lord, would you in this time speak with my mouth, stand in my body, so to speak, think with my thoughts so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm sure this is true for you, that you, you resonate with this. There are some conversations in life, some things that, that people say to you that you just know, like in the moment, you're like, I'm going to remember this forever. It just sticks with you. There, there are conversations, I mean, even now as I say that, like there are probably memories or words or conversations you've had that come to mind very quickly. And, and there are many for me, but there's one in particular, and I've probably shared it uh, at some point. I basically have nine stories that I cycle through as a pastor, but, but one story in particular is when I was in college, um, I attended, I was at Kansas State University, and I attended uh, Grace Baptist Church in Manhattan, Kansas. And during that time, Pastor Bob Flack was the pastor of Grace Baptist, and, and I remember after the service, I was talking with Pastor Flack and asking him what his plans were for the afternoon, and he mentioned that he was actually going to be officiating a funeral. And very, like, dumb, naive Reed is like, oh, I bet you do a lot of funerals, you know, as a pastor. I was like, yes, uh, thank you, Captain Obvious, for that fact. And he's like, yes, I, I actually do a lot of funerals. And, and I remember saying at that moment, I said, you know, as I think about it, like, I've probably only gone to three funerals in my entire life as I think about my, my life. And I remember what he said of this, and, I was, and it will never leave me. He said, how unfortunate. And then he just kind of walked off, and I was like, well, that, that was the wrong word. I think you chose the wrong word. Like, how unfortunate. Shouldn't I be considered fortunate that I have not had to attend funerals? Shouldn't I be considered blessed that I have not had to see many loved ones placed into the ground? Shouldn't I see my life as a happy life because I have not had to be surrounded by death? And as I reflected on Pastor Flack's words, he was absolutely true, absolutely right. It is unfortunate that I have not had the opportunity to be around death because there is something about being around death that precisely serves to enrich and enhance our understanding and the joys 
of life. And I believe that that is what is true in our words today in the text in John chapter 11. But, but we hear that and we, we, it doesn't resonate with us. We don't like funerals because we don't like death. As kind of modern people, we don't like funerals because we don't like death. And we don't like death because we don't like admitting we have limitations. And we don't like admitting we have limitations because we don't, if we're honest, we don't like admitting that we aren't God. We may not say that. We would never make that audacious claim that we believe that we are God. But functionally how we live our lives, we want to believe as though we are God. But death is real. No, no matter what you believe about it, death is real. No matter how much we try to deny it, how much we try to diffuse it or even dress it up, death is a reality. And so what I want you to think about in this moment is what, what is your earliest memory of death? It may have been a, a pet. It may have been an animal in the neighborhood. It may have been a loved one, a friend. What was your earliest memory of death and what did you feel what did your embodied soul experience as you faced the reality of mortality? What was that moment for you? What did you learn? What did you feel? What did you experience? As we come to our text today in John 11, we come to this sign of life that Jesus gives us that speaks to this longing we have to have some understanding to what death is and why it exists in a world when we feel as though it shouldn't. Now, if, you, if you've been with us, we've been in the Gospel of John for several weeks in our series that we're calling Signs of Life. And what we're doing in this series is seeing how the Gospel writer John is pointing out the various ways in which Jesus is revealing to us through these signs the type of king that he is and the type of kingdom that he is bringing. And in this sign where he declares himself to be the resurrection and the life, we come to find a sign that I would argue to be one of the most hopeful and powerful signs that Jesus has given us yet. So John chapter 11 is where we'll be camped out. Have your Bibles open there just to give context. If you've been following along with us in John, if you've been reading or with the formed life, you know that as Jesus' public ministry advances, along with it, there is this, ad, uh, this growing tension and mounting hostility against Jesus uh, by the religious leaders, so much so that they want him dead. And it's gotten to the point where he's had to flee Judea. And so he has left Judea because things have gotten really dangerous there. And now he is asked to return to Judea, to a town called Bethany, because of his friend Lazarus, who is ill. And so, so the disciples are a little bit anxious about this. Like, hey, Jesus, like, remember how Judea like, was not great? Like, we really shouldn't go back there because things don't look well for you. And so Jesus, in this moment is now trying to decide, what should I do? It's not safe that I go. My disciples don't want me to go. But my dear friend, Mary and Martha, have informed me that my other dear friend, Lazarus, is ill. What should I do? And, and to kind of even give us a little bit of an insight into Jesus, like, Jesus doesn't play favorites necessarily, you know, but, but if he did, man, the family from Bethany would be at the top of the list of people that he loved and would maybe show favoritism to if he showed favoritism. Because he absolutely loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. The other gospel writers account for us that, that they opened their home to Jesus on multiple occasions during his public ministry. Their, their home in Bethany was a retreat center for Jesus. It was a place where he would return to find rest and recovery, hospitality. And in this time, Jesus received these words in verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord... He whom you love, referring to Lazarus, is ill. 
They don't tell him to come. They don't say, Jesus, drop what you're doing and start sprinting to Bethany right now. They just simply inform him, he whom you love is ill. And so they assume that just by having that information, Jesus, out of his deep love for Lazarus, not just because he's the son of God who loves the world, but because of his unique human affection for Lazarus as a dear friend, that Jesus would drop everything and come. But that's not what happens. Very strangely, Jesus intentionally delays. He doesn't say like, hey, I've got a lot of things going on. Like, how does Wednesday look of next week? Like, he does, he's not busy. He intentionally delays and tarries and says that he is going to wait to go because Jesus' illness isn't really all that significant. And in Jesus, as he intentionally waits, Lazarus dies. And so this home that, that, that functioned like a retreat center is now functioning like a funeral home because Jesus' dear friend Lazarus is dead. And the question is, why on earth did the Son of God wait? And why did he wait knowing that it would lead to his dear friend's death? And so, and so that is a perplexing question, because, and it gets even weirder as we go on in what John records for us. And so the first thing I want us to look at is this, this really just the fact that Jesus waits. Jesus waits, and we are left with the question of why. So look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, when he heard the news that Lazarus was ill, when he heard it, he said to his disciples, so, remember, so Mary and Martha have not come to him, they have sent news. Um, and it says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So now it's even weirder. Like Jesus is like, wait, are you? So are you saying that Mary and Martha are like lying? Are you kind of like gaslighting us? Jesus is like, no, this isn't an illness. Like it's a flesh wound. Like just rub some dirt on it. It's fine. Like what is Jesus saying? Because it seems as though he's being really dismissive and rather cruel and tone deaf about the fact that his dear friend Mary and Martha have just sent him this news. Hey, your, your buddy Lazarus is dying. Come now. And he's like, no, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a cold. And so how are we to make sense of what Jesus is saying? And it gets even weirder because he says, actually, you know, he's sick because this is going to be an opportunity for for me and my dad to get a lot of attention. And so it's even weirder. It's just like all this stuff, like now all the attention is back on him. Like what is Jesus saying? Now, John, when he uses the word glory, when he records Jesus' use of the word glory in his gospel, glory is almost always, not, not always, but almost always, a reference to a revelation that is, that is about to come or has, has just now come. Glory is meant to show that there is some new truth, some new understanding, or some new insight into who God is and the type of kingdom that he is bringing. And that is happening here. That, that Basically what Jesus is saying is that, hey, this situation of Lazarus' illness, it's going to be an opportunity for a greater form of truth to come forward. Just wait and trust me. But it gets even stranger still in what he says in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. And so, because he loved them, so, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. That doesn't, like, that doesn't make, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
And so after Jesus hears the news that Lazarus is ill and is on his deathbed, you would assume that the next verse would read like this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so he broke out in a full-fledged sprint toward Bethany to be with his friend on his deathbed. And that's not what the scripture says. Instead, it says that his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus is the basis for why he waited. And that makes no sense at face value. How is it that his love compelled him to wait until Lazarus died? And and just to pause for a minute, to allow this word to kind of speak to our human experiences now. Like some of us resonate with this and and relate to Jesus in this way. We, We know we've been told that Jesus loves us for the Bible tells me so. But what we feel is that Jesus is waiting and delaying, that he is hauntingly silent and absent. I've been told that he loves me. I've been told that he will see me through hard times. But all I feel is that Jesus is absent. Why does Jesus wait? Jesus waits because there is no barrier that can stop him. Which again sounds very strange, and I'll explain what I mean, but Jesus waits because no barrier can stop him. Jesus doesn't wait because he's indifferent. He doesn't wait because he's busy. He doesn't wait because he's cruel. He waits precisely because he loves. And what's really interesting, and this is unfortunate because of the English language's limitation, but he loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus more than they have even declared. In the English language, we have one word for the word love. It's the word love. In the Greek language, there are four words for the word love. And when Mary and Martha send news that he whom you love is ill, that word is philia, love. That is brotherly love, affectionate love between friends. The city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. When Jesus says that he waits because he loves Mary and Martha, he loves because he agapes them. Agape is an unconditional, sacrificial, costly love. And so, yes, Jesus loves Lazarus, but he loves him even more than Mary and Martha realize. So how on earth is waiting a loving act? Waiting is a loving act because in the waiting, it leads to believing. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 of John 11. Then Jesus told them plainly to the disciples, Lazarus has died. He was trying to speak poetically, like, hey, he's, he's fallen asleep. And then Jesus is like, all right, you're kind of dense. He's dead. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The pain of waiting was necessary. For the pleasure of receiving and believing in Jesus as the Lord and as the Savior of the world and the one who is the resurrection and the life. The waiting was necessary for the goodness of what was to come, the greater glory and revelation of what Jesus was bringing. That's not a dismissive thing. He's not making light of Lazarus' death, but the waiting was necessary. Let, let me illustrate it this way. I, um, I, I've, I love running races. I've run different races throughout my life. I've done some marathons, half marathons, some obstacle races. And without exception, as much as I enjoy them, at every point, there's a point in every race where I say either to myself or very much out loud, why am I doing this? This is the dumbest thing in the world. I will never do, mark my words, I will never do this again. And then eight minutes after I cross the finish line, I'm signing up for the next one. And so, but here's the thing. I I remember when I ran my first 
full marathon, the Kansas City Marathon, at mile 22. Somebody once told me that there are two halves of a marathon, the first 20 miles and then the last six miles. And that's absolutely true. Mile 22, I am just like, I, I want to stop. Everything in me wants to stop. And the pain of that moment of mile 22 and every mile after that, the pain of that was necessary for the pleasure and the joy of crossing the finish line and having that kind of victorious moment. You, you could say the same thing, and I'm not going to speak from experience. The same thing is true of, of bringing a child into this world. The pain of labor is necessary. No one wants to repeat it. Like, wasn't that fun? Like, no one wants to repeat labor, but it's necessary for the pleasure and the goodness and the joy of a life coming into this world. And so as painful as it was for Mary and Martha and their friends to wait on Jesus, it was necessary in order to show that there is no amount of pain or evil or power in this world that will stop Jesus from loving us and accomplishing his mission. When we look at it through a narrow lens, through a microscope, it doesn't make sense. But when we step back and try to see, as God sees, which we can't, that there is a necessity to the suffering and waiting that brings about a greater good. Which is why in all of this waiting, it leads to the point that Jesus is able to declare this promise in the words of verses 25 to 26. As he arrives and sees Martha and Mary, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The pain of waiting leads to our flourishing because it leads to our believing. We only see from the ground level, like Mary and Martha, from their vantage point, it looks like Jesus is just waiting and stalling, and it's because of his waiting that Lazarus dies. But Jesus sees from every angle. He sees why the waiting leads to a greater good. And so often our anger and frustration and disappointment with God stems from the fact that we do not see all that he sees. One of the most retweeted tweets by Pastor Tim Keller uh, is this tweet. He says, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. I'm going to say that again. If we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. The problem is that we don't know what God knows. And so this is where I want us to understand in our waiting, I don't want to dismiss or minimize our waiting, our pain, our disappointment, because many of us are, are waiting for something. I can resonate with this. I mean, I, all of us can resonate with this in some point in our life or even currently. We're waiting for the start of something or the end of something. We're waiting for the arrival of something or the departure of something. We're waiting for the conclusion, the culmination, the solution to something. And we just, and in our minds, we know what the best timeline is. But we see from the ground, and God sees from every angle. And so, would we be willing to recognize that from our finite perspective, we do not see how every single scenario might play out? We have no idea that if we got what we wanted, it may, it may produce a series of outcomes that would actually be not in our favor. I've, I've used this illustration before, I think it's actually attributed to Tim Keller. But think about who you were when you were 10 years old. And if you're 10 years old, think about who you were when you were 5 years old, okay? Would you entrust your life now to the 10-year-old version of yourself? 
Like, just think about who you were when you were 10. Some of you know me when I was 10, uh, and that's, that's a scary thing to think about. But, but just think about who you were when you were 10. You would never entrust yourself today to the 10-year-old version of yourself. But think about this. I, I'm 40. I would not entrust my life today to the 30-year-old version of myself. I know who I was when I was 30. And there are some things that that guy did and decisions he made that I would not entrust to me. And my guess is, if I'm honest, when I turn 50, I'm going to say the same thing about this version of myself. Like, that 40-year-old guy was an idiot. What was he doing? If that's true, can we get to the conclusion that we perhaps don't know the best way to approach life? And so be willing to entrust your life to the one who knows and sees all, the one who waits because no barrier can stop him. The one who in his infinite wisdom knows what is best for us. The one whose infinite power he's able to accomplish what is best for us. And his infinite love desires what is best for us. Or as is this psalm that has been a comfort to me in recent days and weeks. Psalm 84, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. So Jesus waits, but secondly, Jesus weeps. And we see this as the story unfolds. Lazarus has been, in, has been dead for four days. The funeral has likely been going on since then. And Jesus has this intense conversation with Mary and Martha, verses 20 and 22. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Mary and Martha, they love Jesus. They want to trust him, but they're also very disappointed in him. And both of those things can be true simultaneously. And notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their disappointment and frustration with him. In fact, he kind of even legitimizes their disappointment by weeping alongside them. And so there is a way to trust and love Jesus and simultaneously be disappointed and frustrated in how things are turning out. And it's captured perfectly by what, Mary and Mar- what Martha says here. And what we see is that Jesus enters into our disappointment and frustration. He doesn't merely criticize us for it, but enters into it with us. You would think that he would come in and say, like, guys, chill out. I'm the resurrection of the life. Like, this is not a big deal. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't minimize their pain. In fact, he identifies with it. How does Jesus react when he arrives to the tomb of his friend and sees Mary weeping? Verse 33 through 35 says this. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So Jesus has already said, it's not that big of a deal. I'm the resurrection and the life. Like, this illness doesn't lead to death. And yet, in this moment, he's deeply moved. And that word deeply moved in, in our English Bibles does not do justice to what the actual phrase is. It means to convulse with rage. It means to quake in your body. It means to writhe in agony. It's not like, like when we think of like deeply moved as Midwesterners, like deeply moved is, mm. Mm. Like that's deeply moved. Like Jesus is raging with the same amount of emotion and intensity at the tears of Mary and at the tomb of Lazarus. Both things cause Jesus to be deeply moved and rage within his body. But why? Why is Jesus weeping? Jesus weeps because no pain is numb to him. Jesus, so yes, Jesus waits because nothing can stop him. 
It's like, chill out, I'm the resurrection life. But simultaneously, Jesus weeps because no pain is numb to him. John 11 is perhaps, in my opinion, one of the most powerful displays of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Because in it we see, I'm the resurrection, the life. Who else has that on their resume? And then simultaneously, we see Jesus declaring, seeing him weeping alongside his friends. And as we see Jesus weeping at Lazarus' tomb, we should see the God of all creation profoundly and powerfully identifying with our pain. And there is a power in someone seeing and understanding your pain. We all know this. When you are seen and understood, sometimes you don't want someone to just solve the problem. You want to be understood and seen in it. But there's an even greater pain when someone shares. There's an even greater power when someone shares in your pain. I've used this illustration before, but our, our dentist has told all of our, uh, our kids that we have, we have small mouths, which is strange because their, their father has a huge mouth, uh, metaphorically speaking. But, but the point being is that like, because of that, we are habitual tongue biters in our family. So many tears over biting tongues in our family. And every child of mine, when they bite their tongue, at some point, I've tried to identify. Like, what I'll say is, like, do you want dad to bite his tongue too? And they're like, yes, please do that. And so I stick my tongue out, pretend to bite it, you know, and, and there's some laughter in there. It's a way for them to be seen in their pain, but also... They're seeing someone sharing their pain with them. How much more so when it is the God of all creation who doesn't just see us and understand our pain, but shares in it with us. But more than that, Jesus doesn't just share in our pain, he rages at it. He rages over the evil and injustice that creates our pain. And we see that in verse 38. Then Jesus, as he comes to the tomb, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So Jesus is deeply moved again. His rage in this moment is not just focused on the death of his friend, although it is no less than that. Jesus is raging over the death of his dear friend Lazarus, but he is simultaneously raging over death itself. And this is a rage, y'all, that has been stored up from the very first death. This is a rage that the Son of God has been building up and storing and is wanting in this moment to let all of creation see how much he hates death, and why it exists. This is not just a miracle. This is not just Jesus showing us his power and his humanity. He is showing us and declaring to us he is the God who sees us, sympathizes with us, and shares in our pain, that he knows us, that he gets us, and that he has come to tell us that I am not going to allow death or your pain to define you or destroy you. But Jesus doesn't simply see our pain and rage against it. He wins over it. And that's where this story builds. Jesus waits because no barrier can stop him. Jesus weeps because no pain is numb to him. But Jesus also wins over every enemy, including death itself. Look with me at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone." Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Do, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so Martha, in this moment, she's, I think she's kind of sticking it to Jesus a little bit, like, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. You were supposed to be here more than four days ago. He's been dead four days. Like, she's kind of like just reminding him of this, but what Jesus is kind of saying, like, It doesn't matter if he's been in that tomb four days or four decades or four millennia. I'm the resurrection and the life. Watch this. Verse 41. And so they took away this stone. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The one who waited until Lazarus died, the one who wept at Lazarus's tomb, is the one who wakened Lazarus from his death. And it's the same one, the same one who spoke Lazarus' name and brought him out of the tomb is the same one who spoke and brought light and life out of nothing and out of darkness. The, 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 the very rocks that entombed Lazarus recognized this voice because it was the same voice that brought them into existence. And they yielded to his power. There's this old saying in church history tradition around this story that, that if Jesus had not specified the name of Lazarus, every dead body in the tombs around that area in earshot would have come out of the grave. Because the voice of Jesus, who's the resurrection and the life, is that powerful. He had to specify Lazarus by name as a way to show his tender love for this man, but also his power over death. And so why does Jesus win? Why is he the resurrection, the life? Why is this of any comfort to us? Jesus wins because no grave is safe from him. No grave is safe from him. This sign of life is in many ways the most powerful and in my opinion the most definitive sign that gives us hope in the midst of fears and worries and pains. Jesus being the resurrection, the life, places all enemies beneath his feet and places all power within his hands over every single enemy. For what he did for Lazarus is what he is able to do for us, both in destroying the impending death that awaits us all, but also in bringing us deliverance from our immediate despair as we sang so beautifully together, alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. Y'all, this message is so timely for me and for our church because just on Friday, we, we hosted and officiated a funeral of a dear friend of ours, Carolyn Nellis, who attended our church a few years ago, moved to Boise, Idaho. And man, when I think about, when I think about funerals, as I mentioned, I am so thankful that I have the opportunity to be around death because it is an opportunity to understand the fullness of life. But at that service, I said something to this effect, that death is inevitable. We all, we all know that. And yet simultaneously, if we are honest with ourselves, there is a strong sense in our bones that death ought not to be. It's not just that we don't like death. It's not just that it's an inconvenient truth or an unfortunate end to our lives. But that death is an unwelcome guest that has somehow snuck into this world and is a violation to God's good design. Death is a pain that feels like no other, not just because it produces hurt, but, be, but be, because it produces hate. We hate death. We hate what death does. We hate what death robs from us. We hate that death exists because ultimately within our being, we sense that death ought not to be. Even when we dismissively say that death is a part of life, we know deep down inside that the death, while it is a reality, is actually an abnormality. 
Death is not simply a reality. It is an abnormality. It is a deviation from God's good design and what he had created us for. Death is a foreign enemy that is snuck in uninvited. But even though the abnormality of death is now a reality in our world, the good news is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And not just, not just for some time in the future, but that he brings life to things that feel dead now. That when Jesus declares he is the resurrection and the life, he is saying that his love and his presence in our lives possesses the power to resurrect dead circumstances, to resurrect dead relationships, addictions, wounds, broken dreams, and he brings the hope of resurrection over death itself. For the sign of life that Jesus gives in declaring himself to be the resurrection and the life is the basis of our hope now and forever. A hope that says, while death is a reality, it is in fact an abnormality that will be defeated through the immortality of Jesus, the Son of God, the victor over death, who victoriously declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen? Church, Jesus waits precisely because he loves us. Jesus weeps because he knows us deeply and intimately. And Jesus wins because he has come for us now and forever. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But is he your resurrection and life? My hope and prayer is that you see this sign, respond to it, and find him to be your only hope in life and in death. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask again that you would do only what you can do. You are the only one who is able to speak into our dead lives, enliven our dead souls, enlighten our darkened minds and bring us out of the tombs that we are entrapped in. Lord, whether they are the tombs of, of, of addiction, of denial, whether they are the, 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 the tombs of despair, of depression, of anxiety, of whatever tomb we are in, Lord, would we believe that you are the resurrection and the life that brings power to every sin and every enemy that entangles us, including death itself. And so, Lord, would you by the power of your spirit, speak our names and summon us out of our tombs that we might find life in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. And may it be so for the glory of your name and the good of your people, we pray in Christ's name, amen.